Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I'm going to be talking to George Hawley, who is the author of Making Sense of the Alt-Right. George's book is published this year by Columbia University Press, and I have the pleasure to talk to him today. George, how are you doing? Very well, thank you. Uh, it's a busy day for you and must have been a busy last year. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown. And today I'm going to be talking to George Hawley, who is the author of Making Sense of the Alt-Right. George's book is published this year by Columbia University Press, and I have the pleasure to talk to him today. George, how are you doing? Very well, thank you. Uh, It's a busy day for you and must have been a busy last year uh, finishing this book. Before we get to it, maybe you could tell us just a little bit about yourself. Uh, Sure. I am uh, Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of Alabama, Um, I'm the author of five books. Um, The most relevant, of course, to this conversation is my book, Making Sense of the Alt-Right, as well as its predecessor, um, Right-Wing Critics of American Conservatism, which dealt with a lot of the same issues. Yeah, it's such a timely, such an interesting book. Uh, Usually, book titles are are inconsequential to the success of a book and, and get very little attention. Um, your book, on the other hand, dives right into the controversy simply with the naming of the book. Um, the Associated Press, for example, has gone so far as to recommend avoiding the term alt-right. So let's start right there because it's exactly where you start your book about about this the term here. Uh, when you use the term alt-right, what are you referring to? I should note I understand the AP guidelines and don't disagree with the general idea they're trying to push there. Uh, But when I refer to the alt-right, I am referring explicitly to the current manifestation of the white nationalist movement in the United States, um, and would never try to downplay the the racial angle of the alt-right, even if some people are using it to, you know, try to to hide or mask the, the real nature of the ideology. Yeah, and, and this is right at the beginning of uh, of your book, and, and you talk in a good deal of detail about terminology and naming, and I think that's much of what we're going to be talking about today because it's very important to the book. Um, I'd like to walk through some of the, the history that you tell. It's a history I suspect most people don't know that well, uh, even if many know the, the terrible history of white nationalism and white supremacy. This specific history may, may be much um, less known in, in some ways the purpose of your book. So how far back do you track the existence of the alt-right? Take us sort of back in history to, to where you start uh, your narrative. I would describe the alt-right as a concept really being born around 2008, sort of as the, the Bush era was coming to a close. And there was a growing dissatisfaction with George W. Bush-style conservatism. And the idea alt-right uh, or alternative right um, is 
often traced back to a speech given by a paleoconservative named Paul Gottfried. Um, and when it was first introduced into the discussion, mostly through Richard Spencer, who I think can be named as the person who, who coined the term alt-right, it was a rather broad term that could apply to various kinds of ideologues. That is, if you were right-wing but rejected uh, neoconservatism, to some extent you could be called alt-right. So at its inception, I would say that alt-right applied obviously to white nationalists, but also to paleoconservatives, to um, certain libertarians, um, and, and other groups that have always sort of stood outside of mainstream conservatism. Um, now, this rather ecumenical use of the term came to an end really a couple of years later when Richard Spencer uh, started his website alternativeright.com, which rather quickly became more explicitly racial than any, than it, any of his previous ventures had been. And it's definitely been associated with white identity politics ever since, and mostly abandoned by people who were uncomfortable um, with those kinds of ideologies. I wonder if we could talk a little bit more about Richard Spencer. He plays a, a central role in the development of the alt-right, as you just note. Um, who is Richard Spencer? Um, you know, where has he been? Where has he worked? And, and what has he done to advance the alt-right? Well, he's certainly not someone who is, um, you know, hard to see in the media. He's got a rather remarkable um, footprint in national media over the past year or so. But looking back a little bit farther, um, after he um, abandoned academia in the early 2000s, he had been on track to get a, a, a PhD, but left that to spend some time in what I would call paleoconservative circles, um, wrote for the American conservative back at a time where I think the American conservative was a bit more explicitly paleoconservative and then left that venture to work at a place called Talkies magazine, which was even farther to the right. Um, and then after branching out on his own with alternative right.com sort of building, started building kind of his own brand of uh, white nationalism, white identity politics. And he really kind of exploded back into the scene in 2015 and 2016, as the term alt-right grew in popularity and became uh, really permanently associated with him and his ideas. You subtitle one of the chapters, White Nationalism with a Smirk. And this issue of tone seems to matter a lot uh, to understanding what the alt-right is and, and how it's distinguished from white nationalism and, and white supremacism. So, uh, Tell us a bit more about this smirkiness of the alt-right and how this makes it different from other iterations of white nationalism. Sure. Um, one thing I try to emphasize is that the alt-right is not a particularly novel movement when it comes to its ideas and ultimate ideology. It's, um, you know, it's intellectual background comes from uh, sort of a mixture of uh, traditional American white nationalism um, as well as some ideas coming out of the European New Right. But what sets it apart from its predecessors is that it speaks in a language that 
appeals to a larger number of young people than, say, uh, earlier uh, racist ideologies were able to do. Um, it, it really has mastered the art of internet trolling, has taken on uh, a lot of the sort of the online cultural attributes of places like 4chan, um, presents its information in an ironic and sometimes humorous manner. All of these things make it very different from, say, uh, earlier white supremacists like, you know, William Pierce or, you know, groups like the Aryan Nations or skinhead gangs or other groups that were quite upfront about presenting themselves as antisocial and violent and dangerous um, and uh, tended to attract um, people who had those characteristics. The alt-right doesn't do that as much. Um, it presents itself as rather lighthearted at times. Um, and sometimes, you know, one questions the degree to which these people are sincere in their ideology or if they're just kind of needling at progressive pieties because they find it amusing. Now, how, how strategic is this, um, this iteration? And, and is this strategy uh, or is this, this sort of just an adjustment to the, the, the social media infused world that we live in now? Um, is there a way to think about, uh, is this just sort of the, the world we live in or has this um, been been sort of thought out and strategically developed in, in any way or, or some combination of the both? I think it's, it's uh, there's some combination of the two, but I do think that the way the alt-right uh, projects itself culturally really did develop organically. That is when the alt-right or the term alt-right started to see a new uh, resurgence really around 2015. It wasn't because there was this, uh, you know, clever cabal of, you know, ideologues who had worked out this long-term strategy. I think that a lot of the folks, the, the younger folks who were coming into that movement were in a way speaking in their, their authentic, you know, online voice. Um, but over time, as certain tactics, um, certain tones, certain strategies proved to be effective, you did see a bit more coordination in terms of trying to spread specific memes, um, articles providing advice on how to be a more effective troll, um, you know, how to uh, try to turn conversations in specific directions without um, alienating people. So... I would say that it, it did develop organically, but over time it, it sort of honed its its message. And the people who became more successful, it became, I don't really like to use the term leaders of the movement, but at least prominent figures um, would start to encourage their fans to to adopt similar strategies. And and I guess that gets to this question of, of, of not using sort of the, the term leader and, and ends. Um, what are the ends? Is is this is the needling the end? Is is the trolling the end? Are you able to to speak to the objectives of the alt right um, beyond sort of having having a, a very um, you know ill meaning laugh? Uh, what are what are the goals here? Well, I think that there is an element of the alt right that really is just. Um motivated by the desire for nihilistic trolling, that they they like the ability that 
so, through social media, they can directly reach out to prominent figures and, um, you know, send them into uh, fits of rage. And that, that alone um, amuses them and makes the whole project worthwhile. But the real ideologues, the people who are, um, you know, making a go at this as, a, as, their, um, as what they do full time, they are definitely motivated by an extreme ideology. Their long-term goal, um, even when this isn't always made very explicit, does always seem to be the creation of a uh, white ethno-state. Um, that is, uh, uh, the creation of some new political entity uh, with uh, geographic boundaries that would expel all non-whites. That, uh, I think, um, today, there's not even that many folks on the alt-right that would disagree with that characterization of their movement. Now, in Chapter 5, you present an analysis of Twitter data and, and produce a, an informative word cloud. Um, would you tell us a bit about what you did exactly and, and describe what one learns uh, about the alt-right from this, this sort of word cloud that you developed? Oh, sure. I was just curious because I, I, around that time I realized that, you know, the place where you could sort of watch the alt-right develop in real time was on Twitter – I just used uh, a package that had been developed for the software R to download um, over a period of time many thousands of tweets and then assembled them together after deleting all of you know common words like the and and, um, and see what words most commonly popped up. And um, not surprisingly, um, a lot of profanity uh, showed up, but also... Um, uh, other aspects of the alt-right um, were made very clear. For example, the, the emphasis on, on white was a very common term. I think it was the most common term. And then after that was the, word, was the name Trump, um, which shows sort of what the emphasis of the alt-right was in 2015, 2016. Now, you, you write later in the book that the alt-right was energized by Trump's victory last year. Uh, could we also say that Trump was energized by the alt-right? How do you see the interactions between this, uh, this movement or, or ideology that you describe and, and the actual manifestation of, of uh, Donald Trump into the presidency? What's, what are the connections that you found? Well, I go back and forth on this question as to whether or not the alt-right was actually helpful to Trump. Uh, within the alt-right, uh, there were lots of folks who were happy to take credit and say that they, you know, they were the game changer of the campaign. I'm not entirely sure that that is true. Um, I think that the alt-right may have played a role in alienating some people from Trump, and in the absence of the alt-right, he might have actually won a won more votes. Um, that's obviously very difficult to prove at this point. But the campaign definitely was a huge boon to the alt-right itself. Um, and we need to remember that really at the start of 2015, the alt-right was this tiny marginal movement. And in fact, a lot of people didn't even like the term alt-right. But through sort of co uh, consistent trolling, mostly of journalists, but of other you know, prominent figures, the alt-right was in a sense able to create this idea or this meme that the alt-right was this growing and powerful um, movement that was conquering the internet and that had some important connection to to Trump once Trump arrived. But I don't think that that was true, at least not at first. Um, 
But by getting lots of airtime and lots of pixels and lots of discussion around the term alt-right, it in a sense became something of a self-fulfilling prophecy. That is, um, people were saying that the alt-right was this growing thing. And, you know, prob probably most of the people who read the articles denouncing the alt-right agreed that it was something that was bad. But when you're a movement that is that small and marginalized, you only need to see, you know, a handful of people brought in with every story to experience rather significant growth. So to some extent, the alt-right used the negative publicity that it got to fuel its own growth over the course of the uh, 2016 election. And I think really the pivotal moment of that came in August of 2016 when Hillary Clinton gave her speech in Reno um, directly tying Trump to the alt-right um, and declaring that the alt-right was something that was significant and important. Um, I think after that happened, the there was no way the term was just going to kind of uh, disappear back into obscurity and really made sure that it was going to stick around as something that would be a topic of conversation. Now, now I, I assume with the, the, the writing and the publication of this book, uh, all uh, most, if not all of it, uh, was completed prior to what happened in Charlottesville, Virginia. Uh, I wonder if what, what happened there has caused you to re rethink anything in the book. Um, does this uh, event and what happened next after it... Um, uh, re-emphasize the, the conclusions of the book or shift the conclusions of the book at all? Um, maybe you could talk just a little bit about uh, what has happened most recently related to this. Yes, it does. Um, what we've seen really since the start of 2017 is the alt-right trying to move beyond what I described in my book. That is, as I was writing, it was still almost exclusively an online phenomenon. Yes, uh, Richard Spencer and um, other folks like Jared Taylor still held these, uh, these gatherings, uh, these conferences where people with these ideas would meet and listen to lectures and that kind of thing. But all of the real action was on the Internet. Following uh, Trump's election, I think there was a realization among a lot of the prominent figures within the movement that they were approaching a ceiling on what they could accomplish as a group of trolls and uh, podcasters and uh, YouTube personalities. And to get beyond stage one, they would need to establish a real-world footprint to show that they were becoming a real existing political movement as opposed to uh, a, you know, a group of anonymous trolls. And that's been a major effort since then. But the problem that they seem to be running into is that they have not really found a way to effectively do that. I mean, yes, you will see some people in the alt-right saying that uh, Charlottesville was a success for them. But for the most part, there seems to be a general consensus that no, that that event was not a uh, did not represent a winning strategy going forward. Because the problem for the alt-right that I don't know that they will be able to uh, get around is that the success that they've had online has largely been dependent on sort of moving away from what white supremacist movements looked like before. You know, when we think about uh, Ku Klux Klan rallies or the National Socialist Movement and these other groups that would occasionally march up and down streets, you know, that was um, profoundly alienating to most people who saw it. 
But and the alt right um, coming across as having a different tone, having a different uh, um, strategy, um, seemed to have worked pretty well on the internet, but it hasn't really translated well into the real world. Um, and even if and so when you see events like Charlottesville, you it ends up looking a lot like um, things like the old KKK rallies, old. Uh, um, neo-Nazi rallies and all the things that the alt-right had previously said it wanted to get away from. So its movement into the real world um, seems to have seems to have stalled a bit, but it still, I think, remains their primary goal for the time being. Again, uh, George's really interesting book, Making Sense of the Alt-Right, is published uh, in 2017 by Columbia University Press and available uh, in all sorts of places. Uh, George, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you for having me.